Howdy partners, it's me yet again. Yes, that annoying parasite that constantly strives to infect your lives. Rather like supernatural VHS tapes that beam their way into the living room and cause you to go insane. Not quite, although I'm sure I am probably annoying. But either way, you're listening to the Nasty Pasty podcast, established in September 2017 and run by yours truly, Andy Roberts. I'm a huge fan of this period of filmmaking that had enough grime, gore and contentious material to irk people of 1980s Britain. Growing up in an age of video on demand where Netflix, YouTube, DVDs and Blu-rays reign supreme, it's hard for me to imagine people actually panicking over explicit horror films, so much so that we then ended up censoring them in droves for years afterwards. So I've tracked down the list of forbidden fruits that were named and shamed back at the beginning of the 80s and have made it my life's mission, I mean apart from actually going out to my job that pays me money, to research these films whilst also enjoying them. This podcast specifically though avoids the video nasties themselves as well as the sister list, the section 3 films. So instead I look at films from the same area that have similarities to the nasties either in their distributors, content, crew members and casts and I basically ponder about why these examples were not considered nasty enough to make the grade. This week, we're continuing on with our alien theme, but we're forgetting the whole xenomorph inspiration and leaving it to rot in hypersleep. Instead, we've got two extraterrestrial-themed horrors that still retain the alien invader, but they don't rip off Ridley Scott's love child. Well, much anyway. The two films today are 1980s Without Warning, which is sometimes known as It Came Without Warning, or just plain old The Warning, as well as 1983's Deadly Spawn, which is sometimes released as Return of the Aliens, The Deadly Spawn, or Return of the Aliens, Deadly Spawn. Of course, alien movies are just the monster movie repackaged, but with a science fiction element guaranteed, as these films will feature some sort of explanation as to the creature's origins. It wasn't until the first explorations of space by our own governments that space actually became a narrative device used in fiction, but it's probably H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, which was one of the earliest to depict an alien attack in any amount of detail. But of course, it was more of a metaphorical piece of work, highlighting the invasions from Europe into other territories. One of my favourite classic films, though, is 1951's The Day the Earth Stood Still. And it's one of those films that really was one of the first of its kind, setting up all those tropes that we'd expect from alien invasion films. Flying saucers, an alien that says I come in peace, and a faceless humanoid robot. It's still rather metaphorical at this stage, though, painting Klaatu, the main character, as an almost godlike figure who dies so that Earth can learn their lesson. And most other early alien stuff as well, like Invasion of the Body Snatchers and 2001 A Space Odyssey, continuing this exploratory approach to extraterrestrials. It wasn't really until Alien that science fiction about aliens truly gained its horror association, and we've been lucky to have been given so many afterwards, including Predator, Mars Attacks, District 9, and the most recent Arrival, etc. etc. I'll quit the rambling now, though, about aliens and start with today's first film, Without Warning.
Two hunters, a father and a son, wander the woods in a bid to go hunting. After an unsuccessful session, the father is suddenly attacked by a strange organic floating disc object, which burrows into his skin using barbs. The son shortly suffers the same fate afterwards. Later on, four teenagers, Tom, Greg, Beth and Sandy, stop at a gas station so that the women can use the bathroom while the men fill the van with gas. The proprietor, Joe, warns them against going down to the lake in quite a creepy fashion, whilst a scoutmaster and his boy scout charges wander near the area nearby the lake. Going off to find some assistance as his compass is not working, the scoutmaster comes across the belongings of the hunter and his son when he is suddenly killed by two of the strange flying objects. The Boy Scouts nearby suddenly see an imposing figure walk near them and they flee in terror. The teenagers reach the lake and disrobe to skinny dip, but when Tom and Beth begin to make out, Greg and Sandy decide to go for a walk. After hearing a strange signal on the radio, the pair return to find Tom and Beth missing and they head out to search for them. Coming across an abandoned shack, they soon discover the dead bodies of the hunter and his son, the scoutmaster, as well as Tom and Beth. As they run back to the car and attempt to drive off, the vehicle is struck by one of the flying objects, which attempts to burrow through the window while something tries to gain access to the van through the rear doors. They manage to escape, however, and discard the creature from the windscreen using the windshield wipers. They arrive at a bar, and Greg attempts to get help from the bar patrons, whilst Sandy outside encounters the strange figure outside the vehicle and flees into the woods where she's found by Joe. Greg's story attracts the attention of Sarge, a mentally disturbed veteran who claims to have also seen the disc-like creatures. Joe brings Sandy back to the bar and reveals that he knows of the shack where the thing keeps bodies. The power then goes out, driving Sarge's paranoia to almost breaking point, so much so that he shoots the sheriff when he arrives and then turns his gun on Greg, blaming him for all the events. Joe escorts both Greg and Sandy out of the bar, and picking up one of the creatures stuck to the wall, he asks that they go back to his gas station. After putting the creature away in a jar, they then drive to the shack. Joe enters it himself and discovers the bodies, explaining that the hunter will have to come back for the bodies. Just as they ponder this, another of the small disc creatures attacks him on the leg. Fleeing, Sandy and Greg avoid the disc creatures themselves, whilst Joe stabs the creature that's biting his leg and manages to prize it off. Greg and Sandy hitch a ride in a police car that shows up, but it turns out to be driven by Sarge, now completely deranged, who believes the teens to be aliens themselves. Getting them out of the vehicle and intending to shoot them, Greg decides to humour him to distract him, and does so enough to get him and Sandy away. Undeterred, Sarge pursues them in the police car, forcing the pair to jump off a bridge. Though slightly injured, the pair come across an empty house and relax after changing clothes. A strange shadow appears in the house while Greg is making coffee, and Sandy panics, thinking that she's seen the creature from before. The pair investigate a sequence of noises and strange events, but find nothing amiss. So Sandy goes to sleep while Greg stays awake on watch. She awakens in the middle of the night, however, to find Greg killed by one of the disc creatures, while the larger creature that is still in the room makes its appearance, scaring the life out of her. Just as it starts to bust through the basement door where she's hiding, Joe shows up and shoots the creature, saving her. On the way to the shack, Joe explains that the creature hunts human prey for sport, using the smaller disc creatures as its weapons. Planning to ambush the creature, Joe advises Sandy to use his rifle when the time is right to detonate explosives that he's rigged near the shack. Just as they're about to execute the plan, Sarge interrupts and holds the pair at gunpoint, only for Joe to attack him when he cannot be convinced that the pair are indeed human. 
The real alien creature then suddenly appears near the shack, mesmerising Sarge and drawing him near, where it kills him using two of the discs. With the creature still no closer to the shack, and with gunfire proving futile, Joe decides to sacrifice himself and runs at the creature, luring it directly near the shack, where Sandy detonates the explosives, killing both the creature and Joe, and leaving Sandy as the only survivor. They, they, they hit our van. They were like... Hey, Sarge! Come here. Just a second, fellas. Just taught this recruit another lesson. This round's on Bill. Hey, what is it? Hey, Sarge. This guy here, a friend of yours... Seen him before. Well, he says he's seen some of your flying saucers. Yeah. You seen them little critters? Little flying critters? Yeah, yeah, they attacked our van. Feisty little things, ain't they? Are you two guys in cahoots here, Sarge? Did you pay this guy to come in here and spread your crazy story? Look, I'm warning you! When they start eating on you, don't come to me for help. Come on, Sarge, lighten up. I told you they were going to attack. I said so. It's happening, Aggie. I knew it was going to happen. I told you. we got to prepare for invasion. Lady, please. I'm telling you the truth. If you don't believe me, ask my girl in the van. What? There's a girl outside who's seen those critters? Yeah. Let's bring her in here. We're going to go out and get her. Then you'll believe me. Come on. Sandy, I've got help. Sandy. Sandy? She in there, boy? Sandy! Where is she? I don't know. Sandy! They must have captured her. No, soldier. Not at night. They got the edge in the dark. They'll stalk you out and you won't see them till they bury themselves in your guts. Look, I'm Don't just... Don't you your lip. I'm in command here. You do as you're told. Your job is to take orders. Leave him alone. Sarge, you are not in the army no more. Don't, uh, don't let him scare you. He's never hurt nobody before. See, he's, uh, he's suffered a lot, and he gets carried away, forgets where he is. Without Warning is a bit of an odd film from 1980, with quite an interesting plot and interesting characters, but one of the more bizarre antagonists to actually grace a low-budget horror film. I say bizarre because it feels more alien than I thought it would be, but we'll get more to that later. Its setup is a little bit like a slasher film, except the killer is extraterrestrial, but all the other hallmarks are there. The harbinger of doom, the oversexed teens, the strong male figure, the final girl, the side character who knows all about the antagonist, etc, etc. But unlike the slasher, though, there's a real emphasis on setting up moments of tension, paranoia, 
and relationships between characters. So let's start with the film's strengths, of which there are many more than weaknesses. Firstly, the characters. They're for the most part very well acted, rather realistic in their behaviours and mannerisms, and they're generally quite decent folk, apart from the character of Sarge, who's kind of a maniac. We have Greg, who's a very charming and gentlemanly sort of chap, who's on a weekend date with Sandy, our final girl, so to speak. Unlike the more lustful nature of Tom and Beth's frolicking about, Greg treats Sandy like an equal, and is the opposite of what you'd expect from a guy in this sort of film. He doesn't force himself on her, he gives her breathing space, he doesn't mansplain or dominate the conversation, he goes for a walk with her instead of trying for a fumble, he even looks in the other direction when she's getting changed. And she reciprocates this friendliness, and it's just nice to see a guy and a girl in a film like this interact with each other without the lurid undertone of watching how the guy's going to actually get into her knickers. This relationship develops as the film goes on, and when he's secured the bedroom where Sandy is going to sleep in the abandoned house, it feels really natural when they actually just kiss each other. It's all the more upsetting then to find that Greg is killed by the creature, when he's genuinely a decent guy. Sandy, while she's a little underdeveloped, she also goes through her own journey in the film, going from a rather meek and afraid character to undertaking some brave acts in order to fight off the marauder. This and many other characters' significance is linked to the film's subtext, which we'll get into in a, in a bit, but the acting in the film overall is just very rather decent for such a low budget. Even though the bar patrons clearly don't believe Greg's story, they don't mock him either as they can see he's rather upset. Despite them being terrorised all night, Greg and Sandy giggle when they're scared by cats or bump into lights, which is actually kind of what you'd do in real life if you've had a bad day. You, you try to laugh at yourself. There's just a great deal of verisimilitude when it comes to this, but unfortunately the alien creature just compounds this for me. The creature, while it's unseen for most of the film, only making its presence known by throwing the small disc creatures and actually appearing as a shadow... It's actually rather hokey looking, and it's certainly not quite what I was expecting when it finally shows up on the camera. As much as the design is not bad necessarily, it, it just feels a bit too out of place in this scenario. I mean, it's, it's like cobalt blue, it has that bulbous, large-headed appearance that you'd expect from a depiction of a 60s grey alien. It's wreathed in a robe with tassels on it, it has long, sharp fingers. The eyes are also a bit bulbous, but they've got a kind of pattern of shapes on them, rather like the compound eye of a bug. I mean, it looks like a slight evolution of the aliens you'd expect to see in a sci-fi flick from the 60s, and unfortunately, it's just not that creepy or threatening. Well, with the slight exception of its insistence on just standing completely still and staring. It's the only element of the film for me that brings the proceedings down a notch, and it's quite a crucial element in a film like this. I just feel that the creature's appearance would have served a better purpose in another film, one was the one that's actually less accomplished and more inept in its production. Either that, or we should actually have just seen the creature a little bit more often and a lot earlier so that we could get used to it. In a Ridley Scott kind of way, the director chose to hide his creature until towards the end, which I feel hurt the film quite a bit. It certainly doesn't ruin the film, though, as there's far too much good stuff in it, but the alien does get a slight mark down for me personally. The smaller creatures that burrow into their victims charm me a bit more than their utiliser. I mean, they interestingly look like giant organic ninja stars or hexagons that contain deadly barbs that burrow into a victim's skin. At first, I thought that they just tore through an artery or something, but seeing Greg later, it's clear that these things actually drain the victim of blood. They're an interesting addition, especially as it links to the whole hunting theme running through the film. 
I mean, this subtext about hunting, it seems to at first link to masculinity. This is not altogether a new thing. There's been countless academic recounts of the free availability of firearms in North America becoming so ingrained as part of the culture that having your own gun, being able to fire it, and even killing animals with it, is almost considered a rite of passage for young men, fostered even more in recent times with the NRA becoming so prominent and shootings ever increasing by the day. The hunter in the film's opening is one such advocate for being able to shoot guns. He believes his son to be worthless because he neither wants to wake up early, prefers to read books, and dislikes the idea of hunting at all. The father says, if I raised you instead of your mother, you'd be a man now rather than a sissy. There's even a minor moment where he contemplates shooting his son after spouting that there's still good hunting to have, I'm going to get me some game today, one way or another sort of suggesting that his son's lack of masculinity is worth him dying for. Beth and Sandy dislike the idea of dating geeks, suggesting that they too only want manly men, and when they enter Joe's gas station, it's filled with taxidermy of hunting trophies, with him as well being a personal advocate of the sport, saying, It's a good sport as long as you follow the rules. It depends on the animal and the hunter, but the sport's in the tracking and the hunting, not the kill. Sandy is noticeably the only one who disagrees, saying that she doesn't consider it a sport and she cannot imagine ever killing an animal. The scoutmaster is giggled at for knowing about non-violent tribes, while the kids are only interested in which tribe killed General Custer. When Greg decides to help Taylor take a stand against the creature, Sandy simply categorises his behaviour as macho John Wayne bullshit. Until much later in the film, when seeing Joe sacrifice himself to the creature, she detonates the cabin and kills the alien, coming full circle in her denial of being able to kill something, and then doing so when her hand is forced. Sarge's character is pretty interesting too in this vein, as he becomes an antagonist in the movie, perverted by his dedication to his old duty in the armed forces, which is kind of a form of hunting, but it's simply militarised and other humans are instead the prey. It has clearly affected him, though, believing himself to be under attack from evil forces, which, of course, he is. I mean, it's true, but he's so deluded at this point that he blames his fellow humans. It's also notable how when he finally encounters the alien, he feels vindicated as though his craziness has finally paid off, only to be killed by the creature when he throws two of the discs at him, penning them to his chest like medals of honour. This potential threat from guns is evident even outside of the creature's influence. I mean, Greg, for example, muses after getting into the house near the end about the possibility of surviving the night so far, only to be shot as a burglar when the owners come back. Joe, however, despite his initial appearance as an advocate of hunting, is soon revealed to have had a change of heart after his first encounter with the alien hunter many years ago. For example, he indicates that instead of hunting normal game now, he focuses solely on hunting the alien down and along the way collecting and keeping the alien discs as trophies, building up to the big game itself. What this seems to suggest, and imparts on Sandy as she realises her destructive potential in the finale, is that our inherited primal hunting instincts are best served by reserving them for when we are in real danger, instead of just killing helpless animals for sport or engaging in childish game-playing using guns. These instincts help us the most if we reserve them for when we are legitimately under attack. The creature's defeated because Joe has saved himself for the moment when he can finally confront the creature, while Sandy, though obviously reluctant, realises the alternative if she does not detonate the shack with the alien inside. And then she does so, saving both herself and future victims. The casting, too, has a bit of an impact on this subtext of the film. 
Both Jack Palance and Martin Landau, apart from being solid veteran actors, they also made their early careers in westerns, and they bring this essence of gunplay to the film. While the casting of character after Neville Brand is also quite significant due to Brand's actual combat experience when he was in the armed forces. The film's budget was a modest $150,000, but most of this went to the two main actors for their roles, Martin Landau and Jack Palance, who got $75,000 between them. $19,000 went towards the design of the alien's head, which was designed especially by veteran special effects guy Rick Baker. Not much of the budget went towards building sets, however, because everything was pretty much on location, with the exception of the infamous body shack. The film was shot in just three weeks, in December of 1979, which meant the actors playing the teens were absolutely freezing when they were skinny-dipping in the lake. The shoot was very quick, though, with Cameron Mitchell and Larry Storch completing their scenes in less than half a day, and even the bar scene itself was completed in just a single day. The production was so quick that the director, Graydon Clark, had to double for both Palance and Landau during some of the walking shots, as they'd already completed their filming. The special effects sequences of the jellyfish creatures, they were filmed in the director's garage by a small three-man crew and just edited in later. There are a few cheeky references to other films in the movie too, like for example the blanket that Tom and Beth use is actually Star Wars branded. But the major thing that one takes from Without Warning is its incredible resemblance to a later film that was arguably more successful and memorable, 1987's Predator. Both films feature an alien hunter, played by the same actor no less, that has come down to Earth to hunt human prey with their own weapons, and both have this theme of guns and military clashing with primal hunter instincts. If I'm not mistaken too, the alien in Without Warning can also become invisible, but it's kind of hard to confirm this. There's a moment when Greg's making coffee in the kitchen, and there's a different shadow moving around whilst a musical chord is playing to ratchet the tension up. After Greg leaves to check on Sandy, the shadow again moves independently and follows him. I mean, if the alien were in the room, it would be hard to miss it at this distance, and then the noises seem to occur all over the house. Again, it would be difficult to miss the alien wandering around the house, and in combination with the poster art, which shows the alien as partially translucent, I'm inclined to believe that the alien can at least appear invisible for a period of time. Obviously being released a whole seven years before Predator, it's hard to ignore the similarities, but I'd say that generally Predator is the better film, due to the alien's design and the concept around the jungle setting. That's not to eliminate without warning completely though, it's far too well made, well acted, and too well paced as well to dismiss in any way. And despite a dodgy looking alien creature, it does transcend its low budget rather significantly to make it a worthwhile look for anyone interested in sci-fi horror flicks. Joe was played by Jack Palance, a rather well-known Oscar winner for his role in 1991's City Slickers. He was frequently cast as a villain in old western-type films, but he had appearances in other things too, like the Jack Shoulder Slasher, for example, uh, Alone in the Dark. He was also in 1989's Batman and Tango and Cash. Sarge was played by Martin Landau, also an Oscar winner, for his portrayal of Bella Lugosi in the 1994 biography film Ed Wood. He also joined Palance in the film Alone in the Dark. Christopher Nelson, who played Greg, went on to become a stunt performer on things like Robocop 3 and Murder by Numbers, and he also has a history of TV shorts that he made himself, like Shazam and Ark 2. 
Cameron Mitchell, who we spoke about before on the Blood and Black Lace episode, he plays the hunter in the film's opening, and he was quite infamous for his role on the video nasty The Toolbox Murders. Leo, one of the bar patrons, was played by veteran character actor Neville Brand, who'd actually been a military combatant before studying drama after leaving the forces. He's quite recognisable in quite a few genre films, like Toby Hooper's Death Trap as the psychotic Judd, notable as it was one of the nasties in the UK. But he's also in the Western Tora Tora Tora, as well as the 1975 film The Psychic Killer. Ralph Meeker, who played Dave, he's also been in a variety of things like The Dirty Dozen and The Naked Spur, but without warning was to be his final film. While Larry Storch, who played the Scoutmaster, had been a voice actor in various cartoons of the 70s, like The Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Show or Scooby-Doo and Scrappy-Doo. Lynn Thiel, who played Beth, had a role in Humanoids from the Deep the same year, whilst a very young David Caruso, famous for his role on CSI Miami, played the role of Tom. Now, Caruso's had a few sporadic appearances in cult films throughout the years, like he was in First Blood, he was in Twins, Abel Ferrara's King of New York, Body Count, and the cult movie Session 9. Randy, the son in the film's opening, was played by Darby Hinton, who'd later appear in the video nasty action flick Naked Fist, and he also lent his voice to the Bethesda video game series Dishonored. The alien creature itself was played by Kevin Peter Hall, who's quite famous for his role as the Predator in both 1987's original Predator film and its sequel 1990's Predator 2. But he was also in the supernatural undead movie One Dark Night, and he also played the role of Harry the Bigfoot in Bigfoot and the Hendersons. The director was Graydon Clark, who was previously a door-to-door salesman before he got into making movies, and he started out with some low-budget exploitation in order to hone his craft, such as the black exploitation picture Black Shampoo, uh, this film, 1988's Uninvited, which is about a killer cat, and Skinheads, a kind of home invasion, hills have eyes type flick about skinheads terrorising a group of students. The film was written by a whole bunch of folk, one of which was Daniel Grodnick, who also produced the film. He also did some uncredited work as a writer on Terror Train, which we've covered before, but he was mainly a producer at heart, performing this role on the aforementioned Terror Train, as well as National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Bennett Tramer also held out with the writing, who's mostly known for his work on American sitcoms Saved by the Bell while Steve Mathis, who also lent a hand, was known mainly for his prolific portfolio of technical camera work on stuff like Halloween 1-3, to uh, The Fog, Escape from New York, Back to the Future, Teen Wolf, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, Romeo and Juliet, Mrs. Doubtfire, Moulin Rouge, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Terminator Genesis, Thor Ragnarok, and Black Panther. Arguably a very successful chap. Producer Curtis Birch, who also worked as the editor on this film, later worked on the comedy film Ladybugs, as well as a production executive on Wes Craven's The Serpent and the Rainbow. The music was composed by Dan Wyman, who also worked on Hell Knight and 1992's The Lawnmower Man, but he also assisted the music departments on Halloween, The Fog and Deadly Games. Famous cinematographer Dean Cundy worked on this film. Now, we've mentioned the guy before on Halloween and Halloween 2, but he's very prolific, doing the Back to the Future films, uh, The Thing, Apollo 13, and even Psycho 2. 
The special makeup effects were done by quite a few names, such as Greg Canham, who worked on The Incredible Melting Man, The Howling, Curtains, Cocoon, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3, The Lost Boys, Fright Night Part 2, Flatliners, Subspecies, Hook, Alien 3, Batman Returns, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Mask, Titanic, and many more, far too many to mention. Assisting him were Joe Quinlevin, who worked on Schizoid, Hospital Massacre, or aka X-Ray, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Robocop 2, and also Face Off. Assistant director Karen Singer also worked on Schizoid, whilst another assistant director, Jeffrey Sudzin, who actually appeared in Without Warning as an ambulance driver, had a whole wealth of credits to his name, like a unit production manager on Fright Night Part 2, and also Idle Hands, or various electrical camera roles on stuff like Don't Go in the House, Bloody Birthday, and The Slumber Party Massacre. And also the aforementioned Rick Baker, like I said, also helped with the alien's head design, and we've covered him before when he was on Videodrome. The film skipped the UK cinemas and went on to pre-cert VHS in 1981 from Guild Video. Yes, the same Guild Video that released Foxy Brown and Terrorize, two prominent video nasties. It seemed uncut, and it may have attracted some attention, but quite honestly, it's a bit doubtful because of the relatively bland cover. It soon went quite quickly onto legitimate VHS in 1986 from MSD Video. It then got a re-release from Vipco in 1993, and it's remained in this form ever since. Rated 15 uncut. So, that was without warning. Let's spare no time and begin all over again with a new example... 1983's The Deadly Spawn. A large object falls from the sky with a loud crash, causing two nearby campers to awaken and investigate the noise. Discovering a meteor still burning, the campers are suddenly picked off by an unseen creature, which devours them and then seems to grow. Not too far away the next morning, married couple Sam and Barb awaken and set about prepping for the day. Sam goes down into their basement and after hearing some noises, finds a pool of blood in the cellar, before he's suddenly attacked by the creature and devoured. 
Barb notices that he's missing after feeding the cat and investigates the basement herself, finding blood splatters and Sam's shoe. A hand then reaches out for her and she turns around to find Sam's hand in the mouth of an alien monster with countless rows of teeth. It attacks her and bites her face off, killing her, waking up her sister Millie and her husband Herb with her screams. They wake up, Sam and Barb's kids, uh, Pete, a science major, and Charles, a young horror film fan. Millie then goes out to her mother Bunny's house to prepare a vegetarian luncheon, while Pete arranges to have a study group session with some of his friends, whilst Herb wants to talk to Charles about his horror film hobby, as part of his profession as a psychiatrist. After the pair have their discussion, an electrician arrives to fix an issue with the circuit breaker. As Herb falls asleep, Charles dresses up in a costume to scare the electrician, but doesn't notice strange forms moving under the carpets. Descending into the basement, he looks around and notices the blood spatters and notices small slug-like creatures infesting the entire area. Suddenly, the giant creature knocks him in the shoulder and he notices the large creature hovering over the dead body of the electrician. The slugs, in various stages of development, are feeding on remains of hands and even Bob's head, which the giant creature vomits up. Meanwhile, Pete's friends Frankie and Ellen arrive at the house with one of the slug creatures that they found out in the rain. They hypothesise about the creature, musing that it's some sort of tadpole that hasn't developed fully yet. Charles, still in utter shock at the creatures devouring his mother's head, realises that the creatures hunt via sound due to their lack of eyes, and he's soon distracted by throwing his flashlight at a wall. Ellen dissects the slug creature in Pete's bathroom and finds it unlike anything that she's seen before, and after Frankie spies another one wandering the house, he suggests that the creatures are from space. While Bunny cooks a meal at her house with Millie prepping the dining area, some of the creatures find their way into the house through the sink and end up in the sauce that Bunny is making. Whilst Millie is on the phone, the small spawns attack Bunny and her guests, causing the whole household to flee as they take over the whole house. Pete, Frankie and Ellen go downstairs to show Herb the specimen to get his opinion, but they only encounter his dead body in the chair, with spawns writhing in his stomach and his eye sockets. Just as they flee from the spawns, the larger alien from the basement pursues the trio, only for Charles to distract it with a radio which it eats quickly. One of Pete's other friends, Kathy, then shows up at the door and is almost eaten before she makes it into Pete's bedroom. Both Frankie and Kathy decide to make a run for it and manage to avoid the alien and hide in the attic, but it then bursts into Pete's room and tears Ellen's head off, her body dropping out of the window. Pete manages to escape and climb to the attic to reunite with Frankie and Kathy, but now seriously disturbed, Pete realises his parents probably never left and are probably dead too and then has an argument with Frankie about what to do next. The large creature hears the commotion and breaks through into the attic, advancing on Frankie and Kathy, until Charles distracts the creature again with a rubber toy that he's ribbed with explosive powder. Enticing it towards him, he forces it to eat the head, but is then attacked by a spawn, causing the larger creature to head towards him. The creature instead only bites the smaller spawn off of him, allowing Charles to plug the contraption in, blowing the creature up from the inside. Police and camera crews arrive soon, and aware of the issue from Charles and the survivors, the townsfolk round up the remainder of the spawns and burn them. Millie returns home to a traumatised but alive Pete, Kathy and Frankie, but she panics when she can't find Charles. She eventually does find him and they're all sent to the hospital. Later that night, as the clean-up crews are mopping up the remainder of the spawns, 
a strange rumbling emanates from the earth. Suddenly, the hill from behind the house disintegrates as a giant alien creature emerges and roars, still very much alive. The hell? Is that alive? No. The hell is it? I told Ellen maybe it washed up out of the creek or something, you know, after all that rain and all. I can't even tell if it's a vertebrate. Oh, it's crazy. It's like a freak of nature. If it is a vertebrate... These bumps suggest the order of a pody. Apathy is how said it. But I've never seen anything like that. Maybe it's an eel. You mean those bumps might be, uh, what, undeveloped feet? Yes, some form of locomotion. Is it dead when you found it? Yeah. Slimy. That's why I put it in the sink. Look at the teeth. Holy mackerel. Hardly. I wouldn't say there's anything holy about it. More like a nasty tadpole. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Like the ma- the mackerel? Get it? Like the fish? Yeah, we got it. So what is it? A dead fish? A worm? What? A worm? You mean a sort of mutant Adelina? Yeah, it's too big for that. But with those teeth, it could almost be a fish. Or it could be a misshapen lamprey, like Frankie suggested. Lamprey? I- yeah, that's what you said. No. Yes, lamprey, it's like an eel. Oh. But no gills. Nothing except these weird little bumps. Well, what about a big earthworm? Which is what Annalita means. Oh. Is that on a test? Yeah. Seriously, what do you think, Pete? I'm thinking I don't believe my eyes. I told you you wouldn't believe it. It's not possible. There simply is no such thing. But here it is. It reminds me of... Coelacanth. Ooh, what? Yeah, Seal. It's a prehistoric fish they thought was extinct till some fisherman hauled one up back in 1930. In the 30s. Yeah, you're right. You know what you're saying? That this thing has had to reappear from the fathomless depths of where? The creek. So what's your hypothesis? I'm going to fail the test. I know. What if it's not full grown yet? What if your tadpole joke isn't too far from the truth? This could be the spawn of a freshwater eel. Maybe I was right. Hmm. I'm going to look it up. Okay. I got a better idea. I'm going to dissect it. The tonal shift of this movie from the relative seriousness and somberness of Without Warning is evident right from the very first frame. As two campers are rapidly devoured by an unseen creature, you just know that it's going to be a fun ride. Now, on a personal level, I remember going into a video shop as a kid and seeing Critters 3 and 4 on the shelves, which I'd seen the first two already. So I had my heart set on them, only to notice, out the corner of my eye, a cover that had loads and loads of teeth. It turned out to be the Deadly Spawn, and I remember seeing the huge red things on it, like the 18 rating, the writing on it, and the pictures on the back being oversaturated. My mum didn't necessarily disapprove of it, But she'd already decided to rent me Critters 3, so I remember throwing a bit of a tantrum when I wasn't getting the Deadly Spawn. I didn't see it then for many years until I was in a video shop as a teenager, where it was there to buy, but I just didn't have enough money at the time. I then spotted it again around 2012-2013, when I noticed that Arrow had released it on DVD, so I couldn't help myself at this point and I bought it outright. I was a student and I had way more disposable income back then, unlike today. It's one of those films that's in the vein of Night Beast, which is you know a real small, low-budget passion project that's clearly been made by people who love the sci-fi horror subgenre and just want to make a cracking good time with some cheesy dialogue, stage blood, and a host of special effects. 
It's noticeable, however, that despite the really low budget of things, the film is actually bloody damn decent as well. I mean, granted, it doesn't rise above its genre, it certainly doesn't try to break any new ground, but what it does do is to provide quite a child-friendly, and I'll explain that in a minute, story that boasts enough bloodshed, action and silliness to provide a real raucous time. Now, I say child-friendly because, as a kid, when you used to play the games that you did on the playground or in someone's home... It's always done in the same fashion, so like one kid is the monster, the alien or the killer, that sort of thing, and the others are victims, so you get some props together to make it all up, and you come up with like a baseline to start the game from, like an alien has landed and lives in your mum's bedroom, or a killer has come from the ground as a zombie and chases you know kids around the house. You know, sort of baseless, contrived explanations for the one who's going to be it and chasing everyone around. The Deadly Spawn, it has that childlike playfulness about it, where quite literally an alien crash lands on Earth and decides to live in a little boy's basement, devouring his mum and dad and uncle before trying to snack on his brother and his friends. It just harkens back to that childhood desire to just play fun games. So I imagine that if I did see this as a child, I would have without doubt just started some Deadly Spawn games on the playground. It's all the more relatable as the action all seems to happen in the film on one rainy afternoon, kind of like when you were out playing at your friend's house. Having said that, the intense gore level in this film probably would have been quite disturbing for me, although I had seen Nightmare on Elm Street and the Friday films already by the time I was seven. So, who knows really... The plot is very minimal, although that's not really a weakness. It's basically an alien who lands on Earth, hides in a basement, and kills various people, either directly or through its spawn, until our hero, a small boy, manages to defeat it using explosive powder. It certainly doesn't tax the brain, and while normally this would make the scenes in between the gore rather boring, it's just simply not so in this film. The characters, well, they're not massively developed. They're endearing enough to actually watch it with fondness. The acting is really not that bad, with only a few minor exceptions, which are clearly playing on the tongue-in-cheek aspect of the production. I mean, the main kid, Charles, is particularly memorable, as he's actually quite a natural actor. Bunny and her cronies ham it up a little, but it does pay off in quite a hilarious scene where her and the rest of the old biddies are attacked by the spawns. I can't really remember any other horror scene that has old ladies being attacked by man-eating aliens in such a fashion. Millie is portrayed by quite a fun enthusiasm, while the teenagers, again, are not your horrid, greasy sex pots, and instead quite relatable and sweet students, and they're played with a real dedication to the film's ethos of just having fun. Another noticeable thing, though, about the film is that the characters actually seem to like each other. Too often in these kinds of movies, there's just unnecessary conflict between protagonists in order to waste screen time and pad out the the film's runtime. The people in this film actually just try to get on with their day without sniping at each other, which only makes you warm to them all the more. The creature itself, too, is very, very well utilised, as it's shown on screen quite often, and it looks really amazing. I mean, it it relies quite heavily on teeth, but it's very effective. It reminds me a bit of the Kyodo brothers, who designed the killer clowns from outer space and the Krites from Critters. It's slimy, it's oozy, it has slug-like larvae that almost eat you. It's got a really ravenous appetite and temperament. I mean, the scene where it bites Ellen's head off before tossing her headless body from the window was genuinely shocking. But fun as well, because you just don't expect it to be so ferocious. The small tadpole-like spawns are also a fun idea. 
allowing the creature to basically kill from a distance without moving from its home in Charles's basement. I mean, initially, the design of the creature was more conventional, akin to that of a man in a suit, which had been done before. But John Dodds, the special effects guy, was unconvinced after reading a Carl Sagan book on extraterrestrial life. Musing that a creature from outer space would be very far from a bipedal creature, he designed extra limbs and then flooded the design with teeth, which got the crew's approval. The gore in the film, too, is just utterly exceptional and glorious, considering the really minuscule budget that they were working with, which was reportedly $25,000, but writer Tim Sullivan actually remembers it being much lower, closer to $8,000. I mean, you get blood splashing galore, there's a truly memorable face being torn off the mum, and the subsequent munching of pieces of her face by the smaller spawns. The uncle is found in proper horrendous shape, with the creatures writhing in his eye sockets and stomach. And there's also a truly hilarious attack by the spawns on some vegetarian octogenarians. Well, old ladies, anyway. The titular creature was constructed in the basement of John Dodd's New York apartment, and the basement shots were filmed there too, which is why the basement seems out of synchronicity with the appearance of the house. The creature was so large, though, that they had to hack a head off in order to move it from one area to another, only to fix it for the next shot. The smaller spawns were designed and then moved along the floor, using a line cut into the wood that allowed the puppeteers to basically manipulate them underneath the floor. The main house was the New Jersey home of illustrator Tim Hildebrandt, who also produced the film, and he designed the iconic poster. Because of the extremely low budget, though, the film's schedule was very extended. It took over two years to complete the initial principal photography. The only real noticeable effect of this, though, in the film are the scenes of Charles discovering the creature in the basement, which was filmed over a year after Charles had already filmed most of his other scenes, leaving him to look a little more aged when he's actually downstairs in the basement. Another complication was actress Jean Taffler, who played Ellen, who wouldn't be available due to getting a job almost a year after the film started. As she wouldn't be available for the rest of the shoot, they just had to kill her off her character, which is why her death in the film seems so shocking, because it does feel as if she's actually going to be the heroine who survives the film with Pete. There's not really any subtext with this film, though, but it's just simply a good, hearty, jolly old movie in the style of a 50s B-movie with all the gory treats, the cheesy lines and the silly characters that you'd expect. It truly has heart, though, and it clearly desires to give its audience a good time, which I have to say is wholly successful. There's no way that you can dislike a movie like this when it's so damn good. It's a pity, though, that the director didn't do anything else, because he and his crew clearly have talent. Charles George Hildebrandt, who played Charles, he didn't really do anything else in his career, unfortunately, except appear in some stock footage of this film in a documentary on monster movies. Tom DeFranco, who played Pete, he'd later pop up in Alien Nation and Doctor Alien, whilst James Brewster, who played Sam, had been in a small role in William Lustig's Maniac. But apart from that, most of the actors in this production only did this one film. And it is, quite literally, a one-off production, which explains the varying levels of the acting skills. Douglas McKeown, the director, literally had this one film out and nothing else. I mean, it's clearly a real passion project for him. He also wrote the film along with Ted A. Bohus, a producer on the video nasty Night Beast, and a technical advisor on Evil Tunes. 
Another of the writers was also the special effects guy John Dodds, who also designed the creature of Night Beast, and he also worked on the effects of Spookies, Poltergeist 3, Death Becomes Her, The Santa Claus, Ghostbusters 2, 1992's Boomerang, and Alien Resurrection. The last of the writers was Tim Sullivan, who's worked in almost every filmmaking field, like writing, acting, and producing. He's worked on stuff like Coming to America, Scrooged, The Godfather Part 3, and Three Men and a Little Lady. The film had a grand total of eight producers, more than I can remember on almost any other film going. One of these was the aforementioned John Dodds and the Ted A. Bohus, but it also included five others whose only credit in this capacity is on this film. But two of them, Rita and Tim Hildebrandt, of which Tim also helped out with the miniature effects, are presumably the parents or the siblings of Charles Hildebrandt, who played the main little boy. The music was done by Michael Perelstein, who'd worked on Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and uh, Winter Beast. The editor and cinematographer also did nothing else in their careers, leaving the gargantuan special effects guys one of which was Arnold Gargiolo, who worked on Spookies and Frankenhooker. Another, Gregory Ramondos, also worked on Frankenhooker, as well as Progeny, Dogma, and Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. John Matthews also worked on Spookies, whilst Kevin G. Shinnick made a cameo appearance in Class of Newcomb High. But that's about it, really. The quite low budget and the small crew essentially make it clear that this was a personal passion-driven project the whole way, that just simply wanted to make something fun and gory and on the cheap. There's not much data on the film's distribution, other than that in the US it was retitled Return of the Aliens, The Deadly Spawn, to cash in on the ever-popular Alien franchise. Interestingly, though, it was marketed and released on the same night on 42nd Street as Sam Raimi's video nasty, Evil Dead. It seemed to skip the UK cinemas completely, though, and it ended up being released uncut by Vipco in 1983, right in the latter half of the Video Nasty scandal. Now, Vipco were already under close watch by the police after several titles from their catalogue were singled out for prosecution. Something like The Deadly Spawn would have been a perfect contender for a Video Nasty. I mean, it's frequently graphic and gory, it has child characters in peril, and it has that roughly hewn nastiness about it, and it was even distributed by a repeat offender. But despite this, there's no reports of this film being seized, which I do find silly, because it is on par with the kind of graphic gore and the onslaught that you get from Evil Dead, and it has the same humorous tone to it too, so... Perhaps it was just given a break as the pre-cert version was actually submitted to the BBFC when the BVA, or the British Videogram Association, agreed to regulate the material they had on a voluntary basis. And the BBFC passed the film 18 uncut in 1983, so perhaps the police just took this to mean that if there was anything objectionable in it, it would have been flagged up. The same release was re-released in 1986, and the film recently had a DVD release from Arrow Video in 2011, where the uncut version was downgraded to a 15, presumably because of the schlocky tone of this fun little movie.
And that's the end of this week's show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed these films as much as I did. There's nothing better than a Monster of the Week type movie, is there, with a fresh new idea ready to devour us dumb humans. With that in mind, our next episode is more of the same. Two monster movies where varying levels of stupidity in the Homo sapiens are punished by vicious creatures. But this time, however, from our own back garden. It's Terrestrial Animals Week next time, focusing on both the dangerous appetites of both the piranha fish and the common rat. Our films next week are Antonio Margariti's Killer Fish from 1979 and 1984's Rats Night of Terror from Bruno Mattai. Join us next week for more, but in the meantime, hit me up on Twitter and Facebook if you like these movies, or send us some feedback. I mean, you can send it to nastypastypodcast at gmail.com, or just send me a message over social media. Me personally, I'll be heading out to HMV this week to take advantage of the five Blu-rays for 30 quid deal on all of 88 films' range, so if there's any fans out there, just go out and get a bargain as well. It all helps in supporting the distributors who get these films for us. But whatever you're doing this weekend, though, have a great one, and I'll speak to you next week about even more trashy movies. Adios! (laughs) 